And he said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And so maybe we could paraphrase that and say, when we see things in the church that are scary and discouraging, look for the helpers because you will always find people who are helping. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast, friends. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. Thank you so much for being here. Truly, I'm honored you'd spend some time with me and us this week. If you hear any noise during this intro, that's my kids. They're riding their bikes and skateboards in the driveway, and I can't really stop them because they're kids, and this is a pandemic, and we're quarantined. So not apologizing at all for what you may or may not hear, but I just wanted to give some context in case you're wondering, what is that? That's what that is. Kids, friends, how are you doing? Really, I want to know, how are you? We are months, no longer weeks, months into this global pandemic. We have hit 80,000 deaths here in the U.S., well over a million cases, and states are beginning to open up. No one knows what the hell they're doing, and most people don't know what the hell they are talking about. And everything just feels weird, right? You feel that. So how are you? I hope you're finding glimpses of hope and peace because there's still plenty of hope and peace out there. People are giving a damn. People are being good news. People are being helpers. People are creating meaningful things. You know, it's a hard time in the world, but I have found uh, that so many of you are coming alive under this pressure and you're doing amazing things and you're making cool shit. Not always and not everyone. So don't feel bad if that's not you. You may just need to chill and rest and take care of yourself. And that is a-okay. That is fine. But if you are feeling energized and psyched, I'm with you and I'm rooting for you. Whatever it is you're building or creating, whatever it is you're putting out there into the world, And if you're not doing well, let me know. I want to let you know personally that I'm rooting for you and that I'm in your corner. So if this is you and you're not doing well, you're not out there creating stuff, email me, hello at letsgiveadam.com so we can chat. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to encourage you during this time. Okay, friends, my guest today, our guest today on the Let's Give a Damn podcast is Mike McHarg, aka Science Mike. Mike is a wonderful human, a hella smart guy, and I know you're going to dig our conversation today. At least I think you will. Mike McHarg is an educator. He's the host of the Ask Science Mike podcast. He's the best-selling author of Finding God in the Waves and, most recently, as of a week and a half ago, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. Ain't that the truth? He also consults with film and TV clients like Marvel and Pete Holmes. His work has been featured in you know, little relatively unknown publications like The Atlantic, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, and a million other places. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, and I know you're going to love him. I know I do. So let's get right into it, shall we? Here's my conversation with Mike McHarg. Let's go. Let's get going. So, uh, so... We're the Let's Give a Damn podcast with Let's Give a Damn family, and 
my guess is so we have some some we have a bunch of people that are uh, have a religious faith background. So a lot of people will have heard of you, but a lot of people probably have never heard of you before. And and I, I I'm I'm so excited to be the one to introduce them to, uh, to introduce you to them uh, today. And so why don't you start by sharing? Because I've been fascinated by again at least secondhand not knowing you personally. Um, I have. Your your faith journey has been very helpful and instrumental for me. And I'll after you share some of yours, I'll share a little bit of mine just for some context. But um, why don't you share your story, including your faith story? But like, I mean, I guess you just told us that you had a bunch of really fucking boring years in Florida. But like, what's your journey been like? And then take it into the faith aspect. A lot of people that do listen have a faith background. Maybe it's not Christian, but there's a lot of faith-oriented people listening to this podcast that want to give a damn in the world. And so what's your journey been like? Uh, in kind of lead into your first book, which was, you know, Finding God in the Waves. Very, very helpful book uh, for a lot of people that I know, including myself. So yeah, tell me whatever you, when I say, what's your story, like share whatever you want to share to get, get your story across. Oh, uh, we'll give the, we'll give the cliff note summary. Um, I grew up in the rural South as an evangelical Christian and all that comes with that. Um, so I was politically, uh, theologically very conservative. Uh, I liked it. Um, I grew up in kind of this like, it felt like a golden era of Southern evangelicalism in that everyone uh, thought that a Christian named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came and rid the country of racism. Yeah, it's all gone, right? And succeeded. And so now we're all just children of God together. So that's what I was taught as a kid. I was taught that all people are loved by God equally. Um and that God really wants everyone to spend eternity with God. So uh, he sent Jesus to save everyone. And uh, and God loved us so much that God did that. And uh, if we had a personal relationship with God, then we'd go to heaven forever. And if we didn't, we'd burn in hell forever. <laughs> but it was all you had to do was say one prayer and you were good. If you said that the prayer it. and believed it, you're good. Uh, and then after you do that, now you have this great impetus to get everyone you can to say that same prayer so they also are with God forever in paradise and not burning in hell forever. And uh, I actually believed all of it. <laughs> same, just same. Totally believed the whole thing. And for the most part, my faith actually compelled me to be a pretty compassionate person. There were some things that like I struggled with. Um, I struggled with like, men are in charge a lot. Uh, but I was like, if God says that's how it is, I guess that's how it is. But I don't feel comfortable being in charge. Um, and so I'd struggle with that. And then even as, you know, even as a teenager, uh, when I started having friends who were gay and knowing that my faith said that that was very, very wrong and bad and dangerous. They seemed like nice friends to me. Um, so I struggled with that, but then I said, well, it's important for me as a Christian to submit to God's teaching here. So even though I don't like it, I actively don't like it. It's still what I have to believe. Um, so I would just kind of try to skirt around conversations involving gender roles or sexuality because I wasn't comfortable with what I believed, much less like trying to proselytize others and focused a lot more on God loves everybody. God wants to be in relationship with everybody. 
Um, and, uh, and I was a weird Christian. I was super into science, um, even as a child. So I spent a lot of time trying to reconcile cosmology and Darwinian evolution with the you, Christian faith. Was there something that uh, kind of started that interest in science, or was it just kind of part of who you were? I was a nerd with no friends in elementary school. So I was Perfect. super into science fiction. And the only thing that interested me about science fiction was making it all real. I didn't want to read about teleporters. I wanted to build a teleporter. So that means, you know, I didn't want to read about intelligent machines. I wanted to build one. So I had to start learning about actual science to figure out how to be an engineer so I could build cool things. Um, and it just led to a lot of like jigsaw pieces that did not fit together. <laughs> uh, but somehow like I would ask questions to the right person at church and they'd point me to some impossibly obscure Christian book that talked about science revolution or whatever that nine people had read. Uh, but I was, you know, eight or 10 or 12. So I just got really excited to read these books. And, um, and I also like, I really liked church because it was a place nobody made fun of me. And so mm. even when I like got into high school and learned to play music and started having friends, there was still this like great gratitude to the church. It's a place that nobody ever made fun of me. And when you didn't have any friends, it was neat that God was your friend. I could just talk to God whenever totally. I wanted. So um, evangelicalism for all that it's become was like also the way I survived childhood. So it gives me really complicated feelings towards evangelicalism today in the age of Trump. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and then uh, probably in a pretty predictable story, I grew up. I was uh, an evangelical still. My dad had an affair. Uh, and my dad was like the music minister at our church. And I was like, what? Dad taught me about the Bible. Why is he not following it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I want to be clear. It was really, I was like a Christian Christian. Like I was, I didn't like pretend to, uh, to try and follow the Bible's commands. I really tried to. thought that was important. So I got this like idea that I could study the Bible and lead my dad back into a relationship with God in a way that any therapist would realize is a horrible power dynamic and, and not proper boundaries. Uh, and I studied the Bible a bunch and all the things kind of like duct tape I'd use to like tie my scientific worldview to the Bible just started peeling off. Yeah. And uh took about a year. I read the Bible over and over and over for a year, trying to get closer to God and became an atheist because I was like, just wait a second. None of this makes any sense. For the Bible is self-contradictory. It contradicts science. Uh, God is depicted in the Bible as immoral. Got really into the new atheists, the kind of uh, Richard Dawkins yep. and, uh, uh, you know, um, Sam Harris. That Sam Harris. Yep. Yep uh Christopher was, Hitchens was that a was was your your that journey that transition from being as you've pointed out like a real Christian like I really wanted to make this work I really wanted to follow it to being was that a was it a did, could you see the progression there or was it you woke up one day and you're like this shit doesn't make sense 
I got, I'm, I'm done. Or was it more of like a, you could see it peeling away, falling off as you like made your, you know, like pieces of armor falling off one by one as you made this journey. My theology, definitely. I can see it falling apart, but I had this trust, this trust that God was real and God loved me. And my knowledge of the world was imperfect. So what I knew and was convinced of was God was leading me somewhere. Like if I just kept going and kept studying, God would reveal to me the way it all clicked. And I would have an even deeper understanding of God I love. And that persisted all the way until like the morning I realized I didn't believe in God at all. And by then, all my theology was gone, right? Um, so I I just, you know, there was a grief period, but then I realized, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist. I just don't believe in God. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't awful actually being an atheist because a lot of things I like struggled with. Why does evil happen? Or why do bad things happen? Like a pretty easy answer as a materialist. Entropy. <laughs> yeah. Like life is a struggle to survive in a world with a limited amount of energy. Yeah, I've, I've never I've never been I've never been an atheist, but I assume that the answers are easier to come by, right? The because answers are-, are so easy in atheism. So all these all these philosophy and moral questions we struggle with like if you're an atheist and a materialist the ant there it's like two minutes of thought and it makes sense yep yep um so i really enjoyed being an atheist i was also terrified to tell anyone i was an atheist because all my friends were christians so i went in this like really weird hypocritical period where i just wouldn't tell anybody in person what i believed so i devoted a lot of energy to online personas where I would like, um, basically I, I looked at, uh, some research coming out of sociology and realized like faith transitions are super common and, uh, faith of all kind were shedding adherence. And I realized like, there's a lot of people like me who all their friends are in some faith tradition and they don't believe it anymore. And they're scared and alone. And so I basically started like an atheistic online ministry for deconversion where I didn't try to convince people to be atheists. I would like watch out for people on Reddit asking hard questions and be like, Hey, no matter where you end up, it's going to be okay. Yeah. I went through this too. I'm okay. Now it's okay. If you end up being a Christian or a Muslim or whatever you are now, then that's fine. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I just want you to know that you're not doomed because I saw some, some research that echoed my own experience that sometimes people, when they deconvert, they're like at a really elevated risk of suicide. Like it's a mental health crisis. So I tried to offer a completely unqualified mental health intervention in the form of support. I mean, how could, how could it not become a mental health crisis when you're told your whole life that if you ever abandon this thing, like you're fucked, God hates you. Like he does, right? So the weird thing about Christianity, right, is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? John 3, 16, one of the most quoted Bible verses ever. And it's, we, we'd say that over and over and over again growing up, right? But then it's like, wait, how, how does this love work? That if you, mm. accept, if you accept who I am as the savior of the world, then I love you. And, and I really love the world. But then if you don't follow me, then the most loving thing I can do is damn you to hell. Like, Mm -hmm. and and, and hell Mm -hmm. is this, like, hell is not this, you know, there's different versions of hell, but the hell you and I probably grew up with was 
there's fire, there's all these horrible things that happen forever and ever. You never, like, it's the worst kind of torture, right? This is not your average punishment, like, oh, you didn't, you don't like me, so you get to go over there in the corner. This is active torture. So as young people are deconstructing, deconverting, uh, one mm-hmm. of the two, uh, or both, yeah, like, I could see, I have a pretty stable mental uh like I don't struggle with anxiety or depression and I think I'm thankful for that because so many people around me do. And I, you know, it's, it's hard to see them struggle with these things sometimes, but I can, I can see for someone that does struggle with these things, how it would, it will become a life or death thing for you. Like I shouldn't be feeling this way. And now I am, I'm, I'm doomed. I'm damned. And that, and for people in fundamentalist communities, social belonging is attached to believing the right things. So even if you work through the grief of that kind of worldview and and unlearning those threatening messages that come from theology, you still stand to lose most of your friendships all at once and become really estranged with your family. So when you like double dip in those lays, it it is it is extremely psychologically trying. Um so I went I did what I call my double agent years where I was like um a Sunday school teacher who kind of baked in secular humanism into Bible teaching and online, just a, I don't know, uh, come on it or welcome to atheism. The water's fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was so bit, I devoted hours a day to that, that kind of work. What, uh, what, e- what years was this, by the way, where, where are we talking? Like how, how long like ago? 2010 to 2012, probably okay. like, yeah. So, you know, so it goes. Uh, I was a happy atheist. I was getting, after a while, tired of, like, pretending to be a Christian. So I was starting to plan how I could, like, tell everyone I didn't believe anymore, even if that meant making some social adjustments. And then I uh, had a mystical experience. Um, It's a long story. Wrote a book about it. But basically... Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard an audible voice speak to me that I ascribed to be Jesus. And then a few hours later, I saw a bright light floating in the air that uh, approached me and made me fairly warm. Felt time kind of freeze. Uh, By the way, these are all documented features of mystical experiences. If you're like, what? This is no, there's no way. This is like a documented thing in the sciences. (laughs) I'm not the first or the last person to have one of these experiences. Um, And I felt God's love for me, God's love for everybody. I felt like the ultimate truth was revealed to me, but I couldn't speak it, which is what it's mystical experiences have a a noetic quality is the word for that. And I didn't know it at the time. It's a brain state. I thought, wow, that was beautiful. And then like, as I'm standing on the beach with tears running down my face, I also think, holy shit, I have brain cancer. Um, Because as an atheist, like the thing that makes sense for seeing bright lights and hearing voices is a tumor pressing up against some some part of my brain. I assumed based on the fact that it was an auditory component and a visual component that I had a tumor that was between my um, occipital lobe and my neocortex and my temporal lobe on the left side. So I figured it was in the back left quarter of my brain <laughs> you had you had this all figured out dude like yeah because i'm real into brain yeah. science so i flew home i was in california when i had that experience i went to see my neurologist and i said i have brain cancer 
And I was like, that's really specific. You got yeah, it. Right. Let's, let's talk about why you think you have brain cancer. And I said, I'm having hallucinations. I'm seeing lights that aren't there and hearing voices that aren't there. And he goes, okay, that's worth a look. So MRI, CAT scan, no tumors. Nothing. And I was like, what? How can there be no tumors? So I like went and talked to, uh, I went to a psychiatric center and tried to check myself in. Because <laughs> like, well, it's there. I don't know. Schizophrenia, something's going on here. Yeah. And they wouldn't let me check myself in because uh, they want to know why you want to check yourself in. And so instead they said, what if instead of checking yourself in full time, you just come like once a week on your lunch break and we talk. <laughs> so I went for it's a amazing. few weeks, got a bunch of tests and, uh, you know, I said, you're, you're okay. Wow. And there's one, of the, there's a panel of three people talking to me when they're kind of going over my results and. This woman says, like, as a joke, she's like, I don't think you're unwell. I think you're just religious. And I was like, man, I am not religious. Like, if I'm religious, all these questions that I have answers to, I have questions to again. So that, like, went through this new period of my life where I tried to figure out, like, what was that light? Was it just my brain? Was it more? And as a big spoiler alert and disappointment to anyone listening, I never figured out an answer to that question. So kind of my current zone and where I've been since I wrote Finding on the Way Spiritually has not really changed very much. Hmm. I am like my main epistemology, the way I view the world is I'm an, a materialist. It makes the most sense for the questions involving reality. But in my experiences, I lean into the contemplative traditions of Christianity and I sit back in that moment with the light and I just kind of see what's there. And as I do that, where Christian scholarship and where Christian scriptures or other religious scriptures or other religious traditions are useful and helpful in my attempt to be transformed into a more loving person by my moments in light, I embrace it without answering any, and I mean any questions of theology if an atheist wants to debate me about the existence of god it is the least exciting thing in the world because i'll just say i agree to everything they say and then they'll say but then why faith isn't atheism like more rigorous sure as a fact-finding tool absolutely but when i look at the brain and we'll look at brain studies when you over identify with these kind of rational views of the world you really compartmentalize your brain function. And I want to use more of my brain to get more experiences and different experiences. And um, materialism and atheism are really disembodying. They tend to uh, reduce your access to your feelings when you over-identify with philosophy, when you over-identify with scientific inquiry. And so I think that spiritual practice is a great way to kind of put a finger on the scale and create a more balanced or holistic activity in the brain, which by the way, Sam Harris, an atheist, is in agreement on. He's really into meditation and really into non-religious spiritual practice. I'm just comfortable like putting a religious putting veneer on, yeah. on my my spiritual practice. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I became me. Um and that means like in my work, I have this really strange experience where like evangelical Christians 
and self-professed atheists both make up a pretty equal slice of the people who follow my work. And then there's just this huge chunk of people who are like, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious. With you. Yeah. Uh, not not a, me. They don't know what to do with spirituality. They're like interested in spirituality and they don't have answers to their questions. And that makes up most of my audience. So less than half the people who listen to me identify as any specific religion. So do you like being in that position where you're not offering concrete answers on answers on like faith and stuff, right? Do you like having a, a kind of a big chunk of people that follow you? They may or may not sit in one or two of the camps and they're not coming to, they're coming to you for, for, you know, interesting conversations, interesting discussions, right? If anybody follows you, you know, you're talking about, you know, the, the slow brain, you're talking about all these different ideas, right? Growth and, you know, brain and life and faith, but you're not giving, you're asking way more, uh, questions than giving answers almost, right? Like you're a smart guy. People know you as like your science, Mike, like you're a smart dude, but I feel like one of the reasons I enjoy you is that, yes, you're giving many you know, concrete ideas and theories, and you're talking about things that most people don't think about, but you aren't being so dogmatic on matters of faith, which is why I think a lot of people do – you, do you feel that? Like, Am I making sense? Oh, like people, yeah. No, I feel not dogmatic on matters of faith or anything. <laughs> <laughs> or, or or anything, which is you know, um, you 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 have this you have this quote on your website, and I've seen it other places. Like you know, uh, in times of stress, the best thing we can do for each other is to listen with our ears and our hearts, and to be assured that our questions are just as important as our answers. Uh, Fred, Fred Rogers. Fred Rogers, right? Um, that is a that is the opposite of what you and I grew up in. This like mm-hmm. fun, fundamentalist conservative evangelicalism, where you're not allowed to doubt. You're not allowed to ask questions. The Bible is to be taken literally from cover to cover, even though there's so much fucked up stuff in there that has, we got to talk about it. Like, I'm not saying I believe or don't believe, but like, we got to have a conversation about the, from one page to the next, the glaring hypocrisies mm-hmm. and the glaring mm-hmm. contradictions. Like, if you believe this is inerrant, infallible from cover to cover, and that God did this miraculous thing and there's no error in it, you have to jump through so many intellectual hoops every single time you open the book, right? And so I, th- I think I think one of the, one of the reasons that y- you probably have this attractive platform is that you are a leader in the science and kind of faith space, but you're not saying this is what it is. There's no way around it. You're not getting in these debates that I've even seen people you mentioned, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, like they get in and th- you know a lot of the conclusions they come to are like, this is how it is. And you're an idiot if you don't believe this. Mm-hmm. I don't get that. I don't get that from you. You're, no, you're not, gosh, you're, no. Yeah, yeah. So how has it been? How did, how did your journey into that space, into that kind of becoming that kind of leader happen? Because I know you're part of the, maybe you're still part of the liturgists, you know, that whole podcast platform or whatever. But like, how did that come about? from your time of like being a double agent, then you had this miraculous thing happen, which is, which is interesting in its own right, because, uh, you know, you had a problem with that. You had a problem. You were like, it's, I have a brain tumor. It couldn't have been a miracle. It couldn't have been, uh, you know, a kind of a faith sort of thing. It had there. I have to find a reason for it. And that, you know, they, they couldn't find something. Your, your doctor, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. psychiatrist, they couldn't find anything. Um, so, What's been the journey the last few years of becoming a leader in this new kind of space? I mean, it's all on accident. Um, As are most things, yeah. 
as I tried to find answers to these questions, I realized that nobody had satisfying answers to these questions. You know, um, the new atheist movement could like tear apart the Bible. Um, and humanism could offer, um, a moral philosophy, but there was no communal tradition. There was nothing, there was no glue that made like the way people structure communities work. Uh, it's why it's so hard to build skeptical and free thought movements is like, you're organizing around something that you all don't believe <laughs> there's no shared belief or shared value. Um, and I became aware that like, okay, I don't have these answers. These answers might not exist. And yet people are looking for them. Um, and I know that when I had these questions, it was terrifying. So I want to start doing for others what I needed. I just need, I needed someone to listen to me. I needed someone to tell me it was all going to be okay. Who'd been there. I needed someone to tell me it's not just you. You're not weird. You're not alone. So I just started doing that. I started writing. I had a little blog where um, my blog used to be about like tech and marketing. And then one day I just start writing about non-specific spirituality and searching and all my tech audience just left, right? Just all gone. Um, and a few concerned emails like, Mike, are you okay? <laughs> but I just kept doing it. And then uh, people started emailing me from Tallahassee where I lived and they're like I've been so afraid to tell anybody mm. I don't know what I believe and then I would just go to lunch with people and then at lunch I would just listen to them tell their story and tell their fears and then I would say like yeah I've gone through the same thing you're not mm. weird you're not alone mm. so then all my lunch dates got like filled up for weeks in advance and I realized that wasn't like a super not sustainable, scalable or sustainable model. So I have devoted more to writing and, uh, start, people started following me a little bit, not a lot. And, um, went to a party. A friend of mine is a best-selling author, uh, in the kind of post-Christian spirituality space. His name's Rob Bell. And I went to a party with him in Denver one night. And, uh, this, uh, at the time worship musician named Michael Gunger was there and we kind of connected and it turned out he didn't know what he believed. And so we talked about that and really hit it off and became good friends. And then he called me one day and, you know, I didn't know what I was trying to do. I knew that there was something to do, um, to help people in faith transitions suffer less. And I wanted to aid people through their faith transitions, but I didn't want to be prescriptive about where they ended up. So if they went back to their old tradition, great. If they don't believe anything on the other side, great. If they're spiritual, not religious at the end, great. Just as long as they make it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so he said, I had this idea for like, could we make worship resources for people who don't believe in God <laughs> using what you're learning in the sciences? And I said, that sounds great. So we started something called The Liturgist, which quickly turned into a podcast. That podcast became very popular because it turned out turned out there was millions of people going yeah. through this. Yeah. And a very strange thing happened in my life. 
like millions of people listen to me every month talk. Um, millions. And what I found out was that they tended to be younger than me. There tended to be a lot more women than men listening to me, two to one. Wow. Often. Uh, now, even higher than that, my audience is wildly skews toward women. Um, they tended to be much more likely than the general population to be queer and or trans. And I couldn't figure out like why young queer people, often people of color, were listening to a middle-aged white man. It made no sense to me. Um, I have been trying to figure out the answer to that question for years. And I thought, okay, well, there's something here. Millennials and Gen Z are anti-institution and I'm not affiliated with an institution. So maybe that's it. Um, but recently some therapists helped me understand what's happening with my work. And they said, I've got several letters to this effect that uh, I'm reparenting people who have trauma with, adult men in their life. Wow. So they're like, what, why people, why your audience loves you so much. And the reason they send you questions that you don't feel comfortable answering, looking for advice, looking for guidance in their lives, uh, you know, looking for you to be an expert in their life situation in a way that you don't identify with is because for many of these people, many of these young women, and for many of these queer people, you're the first adult cis man who has consistently treated them with dignity in their life and they've followed you often for years and in that entire arc you've never betrayed them you've never let them down there's never been a wolf underneath the sheep's clothing yeah and your work the reason people are drawn to it is you're reparenting people who had traumatic upbringings especially involving their dads that makes that makes so much sense, especially knowing. I mean, I love my dad. He's a changed man now. Uh, fairly abusive growing up, you know, mm -hmm. me mentally, physically, verbally, the whole thing. I mean, and 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 I don't I don't uh, absolve him of responsibility. Mm -hmm. He bears it. But it was so much the churches mm -hmm. that we were part of, the the, mm -hmm. the leaders that he was told, you got to look up to these guys, right? It's always guys, it's always men, and they're always assholes. And so then you're just creating little, you know, little version assholes of yourself. And so that makes total sense that that you, because you are, you're, you're well-spoken, you're smart, you've got an edge, you know, but you're not, I mean, how unattractive is it? And, and, and unhealthy leaders think it's so great to always have an answer for something. They think it's so, like, I have to. I'm the leader here. I got to have an answer. It's got to be direct. It's got to make sense, blah, 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 blah. And, I mean, look at all the way from our commander-in-chief right now. Mm -hmm. Like, the guy can never say, I don't know. I'm sorry. I messed up. How ugly and unattractive is that type of leadership? It's so... And, and I try to model that with my kids and my wife. Like, I mean, I can't tell you, compared to when I how much I heard it growing up, it's a thousand to one. The amount of times I apologize to my mm -hmm. little kids, I get on the, I get right on their level right after yelling at them, you know, yelling at them saying, stop yelling at your sibling. And I'm yelling at them, right? Got to get down. Like that totally makes sense that they would look to you, someone who could really come up with concrete answers, could say, no, this is the way it is. 
Like I've studied the science, right? I know the science. This is the way it is, and this is the answer, and this is the way. And you're leaving room for that mystery there. And mm-hmm. so that makes total sense that people are, uh, especially you know, the, the 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 kinds of people that you mentioned are are kind of yeah flocking to your leadership. Mm. I love that. Um, let's talk about. I've got a I've got a set of questions, uh, things that I want to talk to you about present day things coming up. Okay, but great. before before we get there though, you just wrote another book. It's been out. It's been out a week or so. A week yesterday. Yeah. So my copy. This is one of the few times that I've interviewed an author that I haven't read their book yet because it hasn't come yet. I mean, if you it's if you hard if, if you go so your your amazing assistant Caitlin uh, sent me like a you know like a galley copy. So I've been I tried to go through some of that uh, before this, but uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't been able to re- read the whole thing. So again, I I hate that that I'm not able to like really give the full uh, picture. But this book is called "Your Miracle and a Pain in the Ass: Embracing the Emotions, Habits, and Mystery That Makes You You." Mm-hmm. Um, what's the thesis? What's going on in this book besides the very obvious, uh, you know, uh, cleverness of the title and stuff? Like, give us a give us an overview of what people will find when they inevitably buy and read this book. It's so simple. Um, one, because of the shipping problems, the audiobook has become wildly popular. Um, it's been really hard to satisfy demand for hardbacks. Really hard. Um, so I've I'll, get, I'll, go, I'll go get the audiobook. I'll get the audiobook yeah. and start that way. Um and uh I just I just feel bad. There's people who pre-ordered the book who still don't have it and might not have it for a few weeks yet. Um and I've got a major publisher. It's just it's it's hard during a pandemic. Well, yeah, I mean I know that Amazon Amazon has, you know, they've they've put books on the back burner. I've tried to buy other books in the last few weeks mm-hmm. or just common things that before would have come in, you know, one That's or two right. days. They're, I mean, they're booked out weeks and they're, and I guess, you know, they're right, rightly so prioritizing. Mm -hmm. We don't need, we don't need books to live. We need, you know, PPE Mm -hmm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. but, um, but it sucks for people. Like you said, that have pre-ordered it, that we're expecting it, looking forward to it. Um, but it'll come people. It'll come. It'll come. It'll get there. And when it gets there, you will find a book that is about one essential dilemma that we face. We want to think and do and feel some things and we actually think and feel and do and say other things that doesn't make any sense to me why how is that even possible and that gap the gap between what we want to do and what we actually do causes us all kinds of suffering and misery and so this is a book that digs in to why that gap exists and what we can do about it and it digs through a layer at a time through the human experience, obviously using science as the main means of inquiry. And we look at the brain and the structure of the brain. And we look at um, compulsions and addictions. And we look at how our feelings work. And we look at supernormal stimuli in our environment. And we just keep peeling back the, the onion of the human person layer by layer to reveal how this gap is actually the result of hundreds of millions of years of evolutionary wisdom protecting us hmm. and how our body is slower to adapt to new situations than our brain, especially parts of our brain. But this has actually been a good thing for us historically. And so the year of miracle apart is, is every single person represents an incredible lineage of survivors 
that goes back to the first life that appeared on this planet. I just think that's amazing. Amazing indeed. So here we are in a pandemic and everyone listening, you haven't just survived this pandemic. You and your ancestors have survived literally everything that has ever happened on this planet. And the strategies that got us alive and kept us going to today can also start to undermine us and can start to work against us. And so this is a book about mindfully and carefully curating and reconditioning yourself to let go of some of those old survival strategies and replace them things with things that suit you more to the situation you are in today and to be aware of those patterns. Um, the book is extraordinarily because it's a book from me. It's very open. It's very honest. I do not speak as an expert. I speak as a fellow survival. This book is a chronicle of mm. two of the hardest years of my life where any sense of expertise or self-confidence I had got shredded by reality. And it's a survivor's account of undergoing these transformations. It is not me lecturing you from a position of superiority or even accomplishment. I describe to the reader a process that I am in the middle of, but that has been vetted and validated by actual experts and researchers. Here's what I love about what you just described, this tension between what we want to do, think and feel, and what we ultimately do. That's the reason, What the, the tension you just described is why I started this company, my company, Let's mm -hmm. Give a Damn. It's why mm -hmm. I'm writing my first book, speaking, writing, starting local chapters all over the US. It's why I'm building this thing and devoting the foreseeable future to this effort. It's because I spent the first 14 years of my career in nonprofit world, in the nonprofit space, and then left it for a variety of reasons. One of one of which was I I was kind of done, at least for the time being, begging, borrowing, and stealing for anything and everything that I needed, which is so much of the nonprofit space. And two, I wanted to explore, you know, business and social enterprise and how can we I wanted to help find real solutions for problems that without sacrificing again, like having to beg and borrow and steal for everything. I think there's a, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there's a win-win there. There's a both and that we can, you know, and a lot of companies are doing it, right? This is not some novel new idea, but I wanted to do it for myself. But one of the main reasons was I started seeing all these people, you know, at, the, at that time I was 32 when I started this thing three, four years ago. And so many people said, I want to be part of the solution I want to help change the world. I want to do this. I want to do that. I have this issue that really I struggle with and I want to go tackle it, you know, whether it's human trafficking or water or, you know, lack of food or, you know, redlining in cities or whatever it is, racism, xenophobia, whatever their thing is that they get excited about, they would say, man, this thing really irks me. I want to go do something about it. And weeks and months and years will go by and nothing would happen. And they would spend, you know, night after night binge watching Netflix, you know, doing the same shit over and over again. And, you know, part of the reason, and I'm excited to dive into your book when it, when it gets here or, you know, when I read the, the galley copy, like what I'm excited about is moving beyond what I already know. Here's what I know. Mm -hmm. People are overwhelmed, right? Part of mm -hmm. the reason they don't do it is because there's so much shit going on and there's so much shit to do that they just finally say, I give up. Like, how could I ever tackle this issue or this problem, right? So I think that's part of it. But it has to be more than that. It has to be more than just, yeah, it's overwhelming, so I'm not going to do anything about it. And so I hope that, at least from what I can tell from what you just shared, that your book will address some of that, like the human stuff that's going on there. Why we say 
and do and think certain that we want to do certain things and then we do the exact opposite sometimes it mm-hmm. it's it's perplexing to me it's so confusing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and there's so much going on there and i hope your 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 book your book addresses it i'm sure i i think it does uh at least large parts of it um depending on who it is so many things can be happening um one yeah we we face paralysis due to a number of choices or a magnitude of a challenge uh, when we can't get a handle on an action and we can't see an immediate effect from that action. That is a powerful disincentive to homo sapiens as uh, behavioral patterns go. Uh, And then tied up in that is a lot of things we're doing, binge watching Netflix, for example, is medicating an inability to manage our feelings to Mm. relate to understand and manage our feeling so what we also find is that as people learn to have a more present relationship with their own emotional cycles we've become less prone to go into these cycles of compulsive self-medicating like media consumption or compulsive eating or all these kinds of patterns but so even though you may have a hunger to make some change in the world you don't have the energy to do it because all of your energy is going to muzzling feelings that happen in your body that you're afraid to experience. Wow. So for those of us who have been conditioned against experiencing our own sadness, when something happens or sadness is a normal, natural, healthy thing for our bodies to do. When we don't think we can feel sadness, then we feel anxiety or shame instead. And anxiety and shame are much more difficult feelings than sadness because they stick around forever just sap our energy and they're so unpleasant sadness when allowed to 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 flourish in our hearts and in our emotional landscape grows and swells and then fades and leads us to a point of resolution anxiety shame and guilt and worry do not we hate them but our brains learn other things make us happy i know that when i feel anxiety if i eat an oreo cookie i stop feeling anxiety immediately Right. And the more Oreo cookies I eat, the less anxiety I feel. And so our brain, way below the part of it that makes decisions like today, I want to do something about xenophobia in America. The brain is preoccupied with getting rid of anxiety, which means as we sit there and we sit down on the computer and we get into the work we care about, we get on Twitter and we look at what a a racial justice advocate says that we follow and admire and respect, then we feel anxiety. And this deep in our brain, our brain goes, I know what to do about anxiety. The good place is on Netflix. And I got a package of Oreo cookies yesterday. Hell yeah. And then we just go to that place. Whereas when we have a mindful relationship with our feelings, when I open Twitter and I read about a black American being shot for jogging and injustice in that, I just cry immediately. Yeah. I just immediately with Twitter open, just weep because I'm learning to get access to my sadness. Mm. And when I let myself have access to the sadness, the cycle of media consumption doesn't drive me to defensive and escape mechanisms to self-medicate. So I dig really into that in the book and then kind of, what we can do about that as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I I have seasons. I have different seasons where mm-hmm. I'm I'm a very 
our family, we're a bunch of criers. We're a bunch of feelers. We sit around and listen to classical music and Broadway tunes all day. We, you know, we're, we're, we're very much touchy feely kind of people, but I feel like, so I, I do, cry, in other words, I cry every day about something, a song, a poem, my kids, something causes me to like, just involuntarily like feel what's going on in the moment. What I haven't been able to do and what I'm interested in uh, figuring out, I don't have like an Oreo thing that I run to. Well, maybe I do. Um, I do smoke cigars to calm down and I smoke a lot of cigars. So maybe that's it. But uh, but I, but I, when I get on Twitter and see, you know, let's just say Sean King sharing about um, uh, Ahmad Ar- Arbery, uh, this young man that literally was hunted down by these three Georgian guys in in Georgia um, and murdered for for jogging because he fit the description of a burglar. I spent, it's funny that you mentioned that, I spent the entire day, I walked in after work, uh, and work is just from my shed to my home, which is in back. Uh, I walked in and my wife could tell immediately, like, Nick's not here. He's making supper, he's getting stuff together, but he is not here. And it was all because of that. I, I didn't feel that as you're describing. Um, and I, again, I have seasons, but I want to I want to be there. Cause I think that when you feel it and you, in which I think the natural, the natural response is crying and grieving, not getting anxious and running to Oreos or cigars. Right. So I think we, you and I have a better chance of actually doing something about it, whatever our part in that is, right? We're, we're doing different things and there's, di- there's different ways we can help with that specific situation. Maybe part of it's just like praying and thinking about it and thinking about our neighbors and our neighborhood, whatever. But there's a better chance of us doing something when we're able to fully feel it, right? Versus running to our anxious Netflix, Oreos, cigars, porn, whatever it is, that is like our thing that we need to like, to calm us down. Instead, because we're not really feeling it. If I run from that to like go look at porn to fall to like to like you know chill out or the Oreos or whatever it is or the 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 whiskey or whatever, I'm not fully feeling it. I'm only feeling mm-hmm. part of it, and then mm-hmm. running to something that is going to mask it uh, that mm-hmm. is you know delicious and good and feels good in the moment anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that am I right that if we if if we can learn how to uh, and I don't want to give away too much from the book, but like if we learn how to feel it like you did your automatic response was crying and really just feeling it that we that we have a better shot of actually doing something about it i want to be clear when i say crying i don't mean what so many people mean crying a warm feeling in my face and tears roll down my cheek i mean snot bubbles Mm. sobbing body shaking grief Mm. so what happens um, is in our life, every newborn child has the capacity to experience every feeling. And every newborn child is a social primate, as all people are. And so our brains are wired knowing belonging equals survival. And so when we start to experience and express our feelings, even as infants, the responses of our caregivers starts to give us messages about what feelings are okay mm. and what feelings are not. So when infants cry and tears roll down their face and they scream, if they are picked up and they are held and a warm t- vocal tone is accompanied by a warm facial expression, that sadness is validated. But if a parent has to set the child down and walk away, 
if a parent has a micro expression, if a parent says, just stop crying, any of those things, the child's nervous system gets the message, this is not okay. Hmm. And I want to be clear, I've had a newborn. Raising a newborn is hard. So as I say this, my goal is not to shame any parent yeah. for something you've done with your child. My point is to explain scientifically where these patterns come from ironically often from people who loved us sincerely and did their best to care for us our parents hmm. i know that my children's complicated relationships with some feelings is directly linked to my actions when they were small children i know that i i'm at peace with it i did the best i could with the information i had at the time which is all any of us can do any day so the infant starts to get mixed signals about whether sadness is okay or not. And then they become a toddler. And if they're a boy, what happens? An adult says, boys don't cry. Mm. You're crying like a girl. Be a man. Toughen up. And then that child experiences shame. And then that message gets reinforced over and over and over. Or if the young child is a girl or someone who's headed for a non-binary identity. They might be told, don't be angry. That's not ladylike. <laughs> and they start to experience shame. They can condition them on what feelings are okay and what feelings aren't okay. This is not sustainable. So we, what happens to people consistently, they get in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and beyond, uh, sometimes mid-20s even, and their body knows it needs sadness. And so people will listen to music that makes them cry watch movies that make them cry or especially as people get into their 30s or 40s especially men they will start to cry readily for other people in what i would call emotionality a performance of emotion hmm. even to themselves that is not overwhelming this is the tears that just roll down our face and uh but that's not the same as grief or full sadness and it's the most our nervous system will allow us to do. And what happens when men cry that way, they get lots of social signals, especially from women, for being sensitive and vulnerable. They get a lot of validation. And the nervous system goes, okay, I can do this. But that doesn't allow us to feel sad for ourselves. That doesn't allow us to fully grieve pain from our own life experiences. You know, I would go to funerals for family members and I would cry like this. <gasps> And it would be over just that first intake of a sob. And then my nervous system would go, nope, this is not okay. And so there's a long process by which you unlearn that conditioning to get access to that feeling again fully. And I'm just, I've been on this journey for two years now. And I'm just getting to the point where I really have access to sadness. I'm still working on anger, by the way. <laughs> I saw lots of terrifying displays of ang male anger as a child and as a teen. That's a Southern male thing. If Southern men get angry, they get violently angry. And as a sensitive child, that frightened me. So I'm still working on my complicated relationship with anger. I'm getting to the point now where I can be angry sometimes in quiet places, but with someone very supportive. Um, but because our bodies have ancient wisdom, feelings are not, distractions from our thoughts feelings are problem-solving mechanism honed and shaped by billions of years of evolution and they tell us things about our environment and um the more we process our feelings in real time 
the less we need these kind of escaping mechanisms like porn, like pizza, like cookies, like Netflix. None of which are bad, by the way. There's no shame if you've literally today had a whiskey, eaten a slice of pizza, had Oreo cookies, watched porn, and Netflix. I am not shaming you. I am so proud that you have found tools that help you survive. And there may be ways in which those tools are not serving you as well as they once did. And so my work and my book is an invitation for a non-stigmatizing, shame-free discussion of these topics. Beautiful. Well, I'm I'm so excited to read it myself, and I'm so excited to point people uh, from here on out to uh, the book. So um, let's not give any more insights into the book. Uh, let's... <laughs> Let's go to some present day stuff, which might include um, some of the book. You know, some of the topics mm-hmm. and some of the, the 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 themes might come up. We are uh, it's no secret we're in a global pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. We are fifty something days into you know uh, stay at home orders, safer at home orders. That's how they're calling it in the South. Our mayor, who's a friend of mine, w- wonderful dude here in Nashville, he had to use very specific, you know, because I, I talked with his team and and they had to use very specific language. You know, stay at home order doesn't work in the South like it would in other places, you know, where there's more of a social, you know, component there where it's like, yeah, I want more of the good of my neighbor here. There's a lot more of that, in de- you know, that that independence. So they, they wa- wisely used safer at home order, whatever. We are 50 something days into this whole new reality. First, how are you doing? I mean, it looks like you have a nice, you know, you have you have an office and you can do your podcast. So like things are probably maybe still a, a lot the same for you and yours. But how are you doing in the midst of all this? I'm struggling like anyone else. Now, I already worked at home, so that wasn't a big transition. As you can see, you can see in my office, this is where I always work. But it's really, my kids are missing their friends. Yeah. I'm missing my friends. My wife misses her friends. We miss our friends. It's hard. Yep. This is very hard. So I just want to name, first of all, it is, it feels hard because it is hard. Uh, So we're doing okay, considering there's been mental health regressions for every person in my home, myself included. Uh, And I totally understand that. And I would expect it. We are all in a a state known as all astotic load. I don't mean my family. I mean, human people on planet earth right now. All a static load is the state our bodies go into when we have a constant source of stress, a stressor in our environment with no obvious path to resolution. Mm. And all a static load has emotional, cognitive, and physical side effects associated with it. It is, it is a challenging state for our brains and for our bodies. And so we expect people have made progress on mental health journeys to regress right now. We expect health conditions to be more aggravating right now. We expect people to become ill more easily right now because our bodies are in a constant state of stress and should be. The world is legitimately dangerous right now. Now you've talked about, and I totally agree there, but there's another side that I want to ask you about because you you mentioned earlier that part of you know part of this book is about you know humans have survived like our ancestors and humans have survived so many shitty things, right? This is a bad thing. In our lifetime, it's one of the worst. Like, this is just weird. And, the, you know, the thing that's so bad about this is it's not a war. We don't have a we don't have a physical enemy that we can see or know when they're coming. Like, this thing is invisible. I go to Costco, and I don't know if I'm going to come home with the virus. 
even though I've been masked up and I've got my hand sanitized so that I'm spraying everywhere, like I don't know if I touch something or what if I miss that part of the the pasta box that I didn't like wipe off when I got home. You know, there's so many uncertainties. So, you know, you talk about that elevated level of stress. There's always, we just can't see our enemy here. Uh, but I also think, and I don't know if this has happened for you, I've seen this in, with our family and some of our friends that I feel like humans have also risen to the challenge. Like we're so resilient and so strong. I've been so proud of humans for how much we have endured this past, endured these past few weeks and months. You know, some people will, they might look at you or even me and say, well, you have it easy. You can work at home. You can choose when to work, how to work, all that. So it's not as bad for you as the person that has to work out there. I get it. There's different light, but it's hard for everybody. It doesn't like, yes, some of us get to stay home and some of us don't, don't get to stay home, but it's been hard for everybody. But I've also seen like my marriage has, I think gotten better. Uh, I, I came into this. I travel a lot for work. Uh, I've spent most, a lot of time away as a parent, um, since my kids came onto the scene, I travel internationally, travel nationally, always in meetings, blah, 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 always here and there. So they're used to seeing me one or two hours a day before, or if I'm gone on a trip, they don't see me at all for a week or two. And now when this happened, I was like, oh shit, like, I hope, I hope I can do okay during this. Like, and my, my wife, if she, when she listens to this, if she listens to it, I don't care if she listens to it, but if she hears this, like, <laughs> it's not that I don't, it's not a thing about like my love for them or how much I want to be with them or not. It's just, I'm a human and I suck super badly at being a great husband and parent sometimes. And I was genuinely worried at how I was going to react and if I was going to get sick of everybody and want to just like not spend time with them. And it's been for the most part, we have, I've had some really shitty days, but for the most part, it's been, we've really gotten along and we've really had, and I have three, three little kids, six, six, seven, and eight are their ages. And like, it's been really good for us. Have you, as you've talked with other people, have you seen that or, or no, has it been mostly like people that are stressed out and, uh, because of all the uncertainty? Um, both the collection of anecdotes I get from my unique position as a people, as a person who gets thousands of questions a month emailed to them. Yeah. And looking at the data is very mixed. Hmm. Yeah. There are people who are doing well. There are people who are doing very poorly families, families yeah. who, who felt good before the pandemic are now really struggling. There is not equal impact across economic classes in the United States. Economic classes are wildly racialized. Yeah. And so families of color are in a far more dire straits on average than white families. Um, we are seeing in the data a possibility that there's a dramatic increase in domestic abuse. Yes. Yes. Mm. People are locked in homes with their abuser and that mm -hmm. abuser doesn't have access to their normal means of escape and medicating. Um, so I, I just want to name it. It is complicated. And for yep. some people, some people are like having this amazing family bonding time. I think my family's in that space. Other families are trying to figure out how to eat. Yep. Other families are locked in with someone who was already frightening and is now a monster. Um, so this tends to be this kind of chronic stress people who suffer from mental illness, people who are, uh, you know, have maladaptive personality traits, they can intensify at times like yep. this. Yep. Um, and yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I've been really proud of people and I've been really disappointed at the mm -hmm. same time. 
Um, we are doing a terrible job physical distancing in this country. Yep. Truly terrible. Now, one is our messaging is chaotic and confusing when we need clarity. Yep. And because of that, we've already lost a Vietnam's worth of people. Yep. Many days we lose a 9-11's worth of people. Yep. All of which were avoidable. Yep. Every, not everyone, but I, upwards of 95% of these deaths were avoidable. Uh, we are nowhere near the end of the tunnel in deaths. We're not not even in the ballpark. The death rate's going to continue to increase yep. uh, as, a, as a rolling seven-day average. Um, and when we look at the data of people, even in places like California that closed down really early, guess what we find looking at cell phone ad data? People are not staying home. They stayed home for about two weeks, and yep. then they went, gosh, I'm bored. And what we're going to see now is Americans' individualistic culture is going to turn around and consume itself in a lot of ways yep. as we lose. We, we very well could lose more people to COVID-19 than we lost in World War II in a faster period of time. Yeah. Um, and so I think right now, I actually think the rugged individualism has an expiration date. I think around July, when everyone in the country knows someone, at least one person who has died, uh, they'll start to, and then it's too late. Then it's too late. Almost everybody that I know that is, that are being dicks about this and that are not, you know, they're, I got to get, get, you know, all the, I got to go get a haircut people, right? If you talk to them, the people that I know that are being that way, they don't know somebody affected by this. They, they have will. and they will. And like you said, then it's too late. Then if, if, if everybody in the country knows somebody who's died, then we're in the hundreds of thousands that have died or, you know, potentially millions. Right. And, and then it's too, then, then it's like you said, 90 already of our 75,000 deaths or whatever it was as of, as of right now, maybe it's closer to 80 now. Um, 90, 95% of them are, were avoidable from all the way from the top down from, you know, even, even excluding, uh, president Trump's, uh, just complete inadequacy as in, in the position he's in where he waited too long. And there's proof that he tried to avoid, you know, jumping on it because of, you know, the 2020 election, all that stuff, even if he would have taken it seriously when it came out, like even if they would have taken it more seriously. I mean, now we're talking about, this is kind of what I want to get to is like, you know, you're not a virologist, you're not an immunologist, but you mm -mm. you pay attention to the sciences mm -mm. way more than most people. So I, I do want your input. What what are we looking at right now? Because we've got states, even in your state, I mean, people, when they think of California, they think liberals, right? Flaming liberals. No, dude, like look at beaches in your own city, the protests, the people spitting in each other's faces saying, we got to open this up. I want to go to the beach. I want a haircut. I want this and that. And you mentioned the rugged individualism in this country. I have, so I've, I've lived outside the U.S. for 14 years of my life, 14 or 15 years of my life. They were the best years of my life. I've been a frustrated mess since coming back. And we're thinking about expatriating again, not because I'm not running from something. It's not a running from something. It's a, I don't know that America can change. She has been so... It's been so integrated into us, this like I mean, this constant liberty and freedom, you know, 
stuff that we're fed all over the place. It's in our mantras. It's in our, it's in everything, right? And people fundamentally understand, at least as far as I'm concerned, they fundamentally understand what freedom actually means. Freedom is not, I get to do whatever the hell I want, regardless of the consequences. That is not freedom. Mm -hmm. That is, that is a bondage in its own right. Uh, I mean, even a lot of these people that will scream this kind of freedom, right? Freedom, liberty, I need a haircut. They would say that they're Christians. They're evangelical Christians that adhere to a faith that also says, you know, you've got these, uh, Christ came to set us free, but then there's all these rules and regulations, right? So mm-hmm. freedom, freedom can't mean I get to do whatever I want. And, and yet that's how we're acting out. And that's why we're in the place we're in. Right. So mm-hmm. what, what, what do we, what do we do? What, if you could, if you could be calling the shots right now, what would you do to kind of slow the speed of the deaths at this point? And how do we get us back on track so that we can be a Vietnam or a South Korea soon where they're seeing virtually no new cases um, at this point? And, they, and, and they've had very few altogether. Vietnam and South Korea are out of the woods for now. For now. We're a global society. If any country is not out of the woods, every other country is still at risk. I, just, I want to name that too. Remember, California has more Republicans than Texas. California is huge and very populous. Um, and so, you know, to your point of Huntington Beach and the displays there, um, most Republicans in the country, the numbers tell us, really like Donald Trump. His approval rating is very high. The right thing to do right now is for Donald Trump to stand on a stage with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and call for unity and offer a single national vision. Fox News would follow it immediately and these people would fall in line in no time. Right? If if they put on gloves and masks and held hands like this, you would see America do a 9-11 style rally around the flag where this is a war effort. If we use that language, we wouldn't be having these problems. People are following their, 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 their worldview and their worldview, especially on the right, is has an authoritarian bent toward it. So what their authorities say is important, they just do with. And so all these pastors are echoing this chaotic president we have. And so we can't, we can't get everybody moving in the same direction. So even here in California, uh, you have people not following policies that are good. Yeah. If we all, number one, it's too late for us to get on the South Korea or Vietnam track. There's too right. many cases out there. Right. We literally can't feed everyone. And, if we have just enough people out there to distribute food, there's enough cases in the wild. COVID-19 is here to stay. That's how, that's how epidemics work. The longer you wait, the harder it is to dig yourself out. We have waited way too long. So what we have instead now is just mitigating strategies that have to be with us a long time. What The track we're on right now is a bunch of states are going to reopen. And we're going to have colossal New York-style epidemics 
in little pockets. It won't be across any whole state at the same time. America's too big and too spread out. You have hot spots over and over and over and over where lots of people die. And as every town has their little Manhattan, they'll get with the program. And that will cost maybe a quarter million lives in the U.S. to get to that point. At that point, everyone will have been scared into submission. And we might at that point have 20% of the people have been infected. You need 60% to reach herd immunity. Mm. And that's when the long slog will come in. Our businesses are failing every day. More companies are going bankrupt. A lot of companies literally can't go bankrupt because they can't sell their assets. They're just waiting for the economy to open up to announce their bankruptcy and their liquidation. In the meantime, there's gonna be a lot of defaults. Um, so if, you know, what I understand to be wise economically right now is massive direct stimulus spending. Yep. Massive. Historic. Yep. And monthly. Monthly. Constantly. Because we have to keep people stable enough to even have a functioning economy on the other end. We are going to have some version of shelter-in-place orders in place for the next for the majority of the next 18 to 26 months until we have a vaccine. So no, there's no other way to bypass it. Every time people get bored and resist and protest and open back up, there will be another wave of New York-style deaths six to eight weeks from the time when they, they engage in that activity. And that can happen, that can happen four, five, eight times yeah. uh, before you hit herd immunity. So... We're in a really long haul here. We need to, if people did it right, if people followed the rules and they followed the kind of plans we have in Washington and Oregon and California, everyone shelters in place for a long period, six, eight weeks, and then you gradually open the economy. You allow emergency room admissions to then go move down a phase as necessary. Social distancing. If masks, wearing facial coverings becomes culturally normal in the United States where every single person does it, then in smaller numbers, we can go in public again. Smaller numbers, we can gather again, but we can't do it until we do those things. The Manhattan Project in this country should be every resource this country has should be going to two things right now. Rolling out test supplies at scale. We need to be able to do millions of tests a week. Millions of tests a week, maybe as many as 30 million tests a week in order to open the economy again and the manufacture of personal protective equipment. We need tons and tons and tons of face coverings and gowns and goggles and all those things. And then culturally, you have to get behind wearing it. The countries that are doing that are recovering faster. Their economies are booting up sooner. The irony here is they give me my liberty, let me participate in the economy is actually going to deepen the economic toll. And I will take no set. There will not be an, I told you so for me. I am full of grief over this. Yeah. We're right. taking what There's should no be. winners here. There's no there winners should, here. This, this, this would always be a challenge economically. We are likely turning this into an economic collapse that will make the great depression look like a walk in the park. And we're doing it by fighting the shutdown. The solutions. Right. Yeah. Are you following any of the groups that are working on, you know, medicines, cures? So not the vaccine, but the medicines? Oh, like, of course. Because uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Distributed Bio in San Francisco, Dr. Jacob Glanville. 
and Sarah Ives. They Jacob Jake Landville's a friend of mine. He's one of the leading uh, computational immunoengineers in the country, and they have found a cure. So they've been working on antibodies that they kind of I don't know what the wording is mutated or morphed from the SARS uh, uh, vaccine, and they, so they've been working on all this stuff for the last eight weeks, and they're testing a cure. Uh, right now with the military has got some of the antibodies and they've got six, seven different places. And he just texted me the other day that like, I think things are, they're looking up, you know, th- it looks like they found a cure. Does that, does that help at all? Cause it's not a vaccine, but it is Be a very careful saying the words found a cure. No responsible scientist will use that word. Well, he hasn't told me that I'm saying yeah, that. I know I want to say, but yeah. I got to reframe right yeah. now from a public messaging perspective. Yep. You don't find a cure. You test therapeutics for effectiveness. So what I'm hearing is they have a therapeutic strategy that looks like it may pay out. So that means there has to be months of safety testing to see how well it works and what side effects it produces. As you expand the population, you could absolutely make a blood antibody that you do with 30 people and they all get rid of all their COVID-19. And then when you test 5,000 people, 400 people die from it, mm. right? So you have to be really careful with blood antibodies. Uh, there could be groups that are put at really deep at risk from it. So you have to do a lot of safety testing. And then after you've done all your testing, which takes months and has to take months and you can't cut the timeline down on, then you have to manufacture it at scale. So that's my point. Eat, right. Absolutely. Right now, are there? could we already have six vaccine formulations that work? Yes. Yeah. Could there be 30 therapeutic options that work? Yes. Now science has to do what science does and we have to give time science, the resources financially it needs to do that work and the time scientists need to do that work. And the way we do that is by obeying social distancing rules. Yeah. Um, Yeah, We've got to do our part by staying home until that stuff. Staying home, taking care of ourselves and for those of us who have the capacity, I'm not saying this is a universal mandate, but I am thinking of ways to do economic commerce from my home, both as a content creator and a spender. Same. I, my, I've lost 85% of my income. It's been an absolute decimation. Yep. And I've committed, I will spend my last nickel at a local restaurant. <laughs> like If it comes down to, can I pay rent or... Can I afford to eat out one more time? I'm going to eat out one more time yeah. uh, to try to make sure that people survive this. And so for people who have any means, now is the time to try to figure out how to keep buying, keep participating. I don't mean this in some co- consumeristic way. No. What I mean is I know the people, the, the, the Hispanic family that owns the Mexican restaurant down the street. And I know that when I buy food there, that's how they feed their family, and that's how their workers feed their families. I'm not talking about I'm loading up my Amazon cart or I'm helping Walmart right. or Apple, whoever. I'm talking about locally owned businesses. Yeah. Um, and so we continue to do that. And then I'm thinking about ways that people can, uh, you know, I'm doing this virtual tour. And the reason I'm doing the virtual tour is no, people are home. They're bored. They're alone. I'm doing these events three, four nights a week. People are sticking around for three hours on a webcast because what else are they going to do, right? Yep. And then I give away tickets and I sell tickets. Why do I sell tickets? Because the people who can afford a ticket, I actually, then I can turn around and buy food and then I can hire people to help me do what I do. And um, I'm just 
we have to imagine. Remember, even we when we ease things, Texas says they're opening up. Georgia says they're opening up. Florida says they're opening up. They're not opening up forever. It, it's going to crash right back down. And then people are going to be more afraid. So what's going to happen is around the third time or fourth time we open up, people are going to be like, I'm not going out there. And now we have a real economic problem because our we failed to communicate in a way that is consistent and clear and failed to set expectations. And when people are afraid to go outside, now you're talking about having a real hard time starting the economy. Even in these states that are saying open now, Georgia and Florida, 70% of the people agree with shelter-in-place orders. 65% of people don't want to open in essential businesses. Mm-hmm. So you might open your economy. People aren't going to go back out and spend money. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go to the, the restaurants and things like that. But yeah, I'm not going to participate in the the reopening of the economy. I can't. It's, I mean, it's just not responsible. Um, no, that's all that's super helpful. Let's begin to land the plane uh, of this conversation. You've been so gracious with your time. In these last few minutes, uh, speak to listeners out there that are hanging on for dear life with all of the change. They want to stay Christian or some variation of that, or even forget just Christian. They want to maintain, they want to keep the faith. I am one of those. I went through, I won't bore you with my long journey, but I went through, I almost lost it all. I never, I never became an atheist, but I did come to a fork in the road where it was like, either we do things way differently or I'm leaving this thing. Cause this is, this is fucked up. Like there's so much, so many terrible things happening. Right. And I had to make some very uh, interesting decisions for my family and I. And as we began to like rebuild our faith from this like skeleton, you know, I, I went down to the, the studs of a house, you know, and like, and then rebuilt it back up. But for everybody listening out there that that had, I bet a lot of these people are on that journey starting in 2015, 2016, right? Things were okay until then. They saw the hypocrisies. They saw the weird stuff. But then Donald Trump, a Christian, came on the scene, and all these mm-hmm. things started happening. You know, xenophobia is on the rise. Racism is on the rise. Uh, so we, we have more climate deniers than ever, and they're all white and Christian and say that they love the earth that God gave us, but they don't care to treat it the way that we should. There's so many just pro-life. I mean, we won't even get into the the, the nonsense that is, uh, you know, the, well, the lie that is all these pro-life people that are very... Uh, not pro-life. I mean, their 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 pro-life stops after you're born. Uh, they don't want to take care of you. Don't care about you. Um, they don't want to help you pay your bills. They don't want to help you live a successful life. It's just bullshit, right? If they're hanging on for dear life, they don't want to leave it. They want to stay in some sort of a faith. Uh, they want to have some sort of a faith identity. Speak to them right now. Uh, whether it's whether it's uh, a bit of hope, a bit of advice, or a bit of like reality check, like talk to them because I know a lot of the people that are listening are in that position right now. They want to stay in, but it's really fucking hard. Yeah. I identify with that so much. Um, I just want to say, I, if that's you, um, I get it. I, I have been there. Mm. Um, and I'm going to tell you a quote from someone who meant a lot to me when I was a child we opened this podcast, I think, with a quote from Fred Rogers. And he said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And so maybe we could paraphrase that and say, when we see things in the church that are scary and discouraging, look for the helpers. 
because you will always find people who are helping. There are people whose public identity as a Christian grieves me and makes it hard for me to identify with the same. Mm. Based on their actions recently, I have no trouble naming people like Franklin Graham Mm. or John Piper or uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. of Liberty University. These people defame the name of Christ with their actions. They... um, their behavior is so shockingly immoral that it makes me ashamed to be associated with it. And yet, when I look at the church, I see so many helpers. Mm. When I see that slaves took their slave master's religion and turned it into a story of religion, through black liberation theology, I see helpers. When I see queer people who were told they don't belong in the church at all and they're going to hell, and those people have turned around and become clergy, serving other people's spiritual needs, I see helpers. When I see women who are told that they cannot teach or have authority over men, leading the church into ever greater reaches of inclusion and accessibility and accommodation, Speaking of accessibility, when I see disabled people rising up to call the church for tasks for its exclusionary tactics, I see the helpers. And Paul, yeah, Paul told us that when we're spiritual babies, we need milk. And those of us who are recovering from conservative fundamentals, fundamentalism, we're spiritual babies again. We need help. Mm. And Fred Rogers is talking to us. Look for the helpers. So if you want to keep the faith, Look to those people who are making the world better. They are there. Austin Channing Brown, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, Andre Henry, Sandra Opsel, uh, and uh, Shannon Dingle, and uh, Stephanie Tate, and uh, Jeff Chu, and Broderick Greer. And I can go on and on and on and on and on with these people who are making Christianity beautiful. So go look for those helpers, follow what they're doing and start drinking some milk. And then as you get some meat back on your bones and you get strong again, remember that Fred Rogers was talking to children. Mm, We are children. We're adults. We're the ones who are supposed to be helpers. Be the helpers. So if the church is something you care about and faith is something you value, Join the marginalized people already doing the revolutionary work of reformation and be a helper. As I have learned to be a helper, to work alongside having power with and not power over marginalized voices, any shame or stigma I used to feel about Christianity is gone because a new atheist could argue with me about the rational implications of spirituality. And I would say to them, what's the last hungry mouth that you filled? Mm -hmm. I care a lot more about people being fed and lives being secured with material needs than I do about epistemological elegance. 
That's beautiful, man. Um, <laughs> I, I I love listening to you. I really do. Um, before I uh, close this, where can people find? I mean, it's obvious they can probably just Google it, but where do you want people to go um, to look for your stuff to follow what you're doing? You can go to mikemccarg.com. There's links to everything. It's really hard to spell though. Uh, so it's MCH argue, like we're going to argue about something. If that's too much, don't worry about it. You can just go to asksciencemike.com and then get linked to the main site from there. Boom. And go buy that book. Go buy both books, but especially the, I'm, I'm so excited for what the new book will help the let's give a damn family, uh, do. So I just want to end by honoring you. I know this is the first time we've met, but like, I can't tell you how many people I've, that I know and that I've heard of. And that I've like, they, they won't stop talking about you, uh, in, in a good way. Like the, the way that you have helped them deconstruct and reconstruct again. Right. I, 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 one of my goals in life is to help people not stay deconstructed. If, if they're going to go all the way, go like, again, I, I love you. I'm here for you. But so many of them are just deconstructing because they don't know what else to do. And so one of the things that I try to do is to help be there for that, like path of whatever the reconstruction looks like. I say reconstruct, you're down to the studs, like put some, like you said, the milk and the meat, like put some meat on those bones slowly but surely. And you've been able to do that for so, so many people that are near and dear to, to me. Um, and so I hope you feel honored and I hope you continue to do the work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing uh, with us today and I hope we stay in touch in some way. But yeah, you've, you've been super helpful today. Thank you for your time and for those kind words. It means of course. A lot to me. Friends, I hope you feel encouraged and challenged right now. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. I had a blast talking with Mike. Hope you enjoyed listening. Lots of great insights, lots of stuff to consider, lots of places we could go from this conversation. So I hope you're considering it. Hope you're enjoying it. Sit in that conversation for a little bit. Please let Mike know if you have any questions or thoughts or ideas, or if you just want to let him know that you enjoyed our conversation. He is on social media everywhere, at Mike McHarg. That is at M-I-K-E-M-C-H-R-G-U. That's how he told me in the podcast to say it. That's an easy way to remember it. Mike McHarg. And please let me know if you have any questions or thoughts. Hello at letsgiveadam.com or you can find us on all the socials at letsgiveadam or you can find me on all the socials at Nick Lapara. Let's do this. If you need any help at all, if you need anything at all, hit me up. I'm here for you. I'll do what I can. This show was created by me, produced by Chad Snavely, and the music is by our friend Propaganda. We are part of the Matter Media family, and we're grateful for their partnership. Please share this episode with a friend, or two, or 10, or 20, and don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, if you can, and most of you can, so please go do that. We have another great conversation for you next week, sending so much love and light to each one of you. Keep giving a damn, my friends. Peace. Peace.